Chapter Nine, Part One of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book Eleven, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: That the dignity of Godhead is inherent in the Son, even though He is said to have received this from the Father, because of His humanity and the form of His humiliation. Eleven holy father keep them in thy name which thou hast given me that they may be one even as we are he still preserves the blending of two things into one the human element i mean which so far as we are concerned imparts humiliation and the divine element which is pregnant with the most exalted majesty for his speech is combined of both and just as we stated in our interpretation of the foregoing passage the divine element is not perfectly exalted to the height nor yet is it wholly sundered from the limitations of humanity holding as it were a middle place by an unspeakable and ineffable fusion of the two so as not to pass outside the limits of true godhead nor yet altogether to leave behind those of humanity for his ineffable descent from god the father exalts him inasmuch as he is the word and only begotten into a divine nature and the majesty which naturally accompanies it while his humiliation brings him down in some sort to our level not as though it availed perforce to overpower the kingship over the universe which he shares with the father for the only begotten could never submit to violence against his will rather was his humiliation self-chosen accepted and maintained from love towards us for he humbled himself that is of his own will and not by any compulsion for he would be proved to have undergone the incarnation against his will if there were any one at all able to prevail over him and who bade him unwillingly take this upon him he humbled himself therefore willingly for our sakes for we should never have been called his sons and gods if the only begotten had not undergone humiliation for us and on our account to whose likeness we are conformed by participation in the spirit and so become children of god and gods whenever therefore in his sayings he blends together in some way the human with the divine do not be therefore offended nor lightly relinquish the admiration you ought to feel at the incomparable art displayed in his sayings skilfully preserving for us in diverse ways their twofold character so that we can see at the same time the god and the man speaking truly in his nature marvellously combining the humiliation of his humanity with the glory of his ineffable divinity preserving wholly blameless and irreproachable the harmonious fusion of the two and how is it that when we say this we do not affirm that the nature of the word is degraded from its original majesty to think this would indeed display the greatest ignorance for that which is divine is altogether and wholly changeless and endureth no shadow of turning but rather ever remaineth on one stay we rather make such a statement because of the manner of his voluntary degradation 
as by necessary inference investing him with the form of humiliation causes the only begotten who is co-equal with and in the likeness of the father and in him and proceeding from him to be apparently in an inferior position to him be not astonished at hearing this if the son appear to fall short of the father's majesty because of his humanity when for this very reason paul declared that he was thus inferior even to the angels in the following words him who hath been made a little lower than the angels even jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honour though the holy angels were bidden to worship him for when he says he bringeth in the firstborn into the world he saith and let all the angels of god worship him as well as also the holy seraphim who stood around and fulfilled the office of servants when he appeared unto the prophet sitting on a high and lofty throne then so far as his being begotten and proceeding from god the father is concerned his humanity is not proper to the son but it is proper to him in so far as he is incarnate man and remaineth ever what he was and is and will be such for evermore and debaseth himself to what he was not of old for our sakes he saith then holy father keep them in thy name which thou hast given me that they may be one even as we are he desires his disciples to be kept by the power and might of the ineffable divine nature well and suitably attributing the power of saving whomsoever he will yea and with ease to the true and living god and thereby again he glorifies no other nature than his own as in the person of the father from whom he proceeded as god therefore he saith father keep them in thy name which thou hast given me that is the name of god he says again that the name of god was not given unto him as though he had not been god by nature and were now called from without to the dignity of godhead for then would he be created and possess a spurious and elective glory and an adulterate nature which it were impious for us to imagine for thereby he would be mulcted of his inherent character of sonship but since as the inspired writings prophesy the word became flesh that is man he says that he received divine attributes by gift for clearly the title and actuality of divine glory could not naturally attach to man but consider and attentively reflect how he showed himself the living and inherent power of god the father whereby he doeth all things for when addressing his father he says keep them he did not indeed suffice for them alone but suitably brought in himself as working for their preservation and being for that purpose also the power and instrument of his father for he says keep them in thy name which thou hast given me note how guarded the saying is for allotting and attributing is suitable only to the nature of god providential care over us he declares at once that to himself has been given the glory of godhead because of the form of manhood 
saying that what was his by natural right was given to him that is the name which is above every name therefore also we say that this name belongs to the son by nature as proceeding from the father but so far as he is man those things are his by gift which he receives as man using herein the form of speech applicable to ourselves for man is not god by nature but christ is god by nature even though he be conceived of as human because he was amongst us he wishes indeed the disciples to be kept in unity of mind and purpose being blended as it were with one another in soul and spirit and the bond of brotherly love and to be linked together in an unbroken chain of affection so that their unity may be so far perfected as that their elective affinity may resemble the natural unity which exists between the father and the son and remaining undebased and invincible may not be distorted by anything whatever that exists in the world or by the lust of the flesh into dissimilarity of purpose but rather preserving in the unity of true piety and holiness the power of love intact which also came to pass for as we read in the acts of the apostles the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul in the unity that is of the spirit and this is what paul himself also meant when he said one body and one spirit for we who are many are one body in christ for we all partake of the one bread and we have all received the unction of one spirit that is the spirit of christ as then they were to be one body and to partake of one and the selfsame spirit he desires his disciples to be preserved in a unity of spirit which nothing could disturb and in unbroken singleness of mind and if any man suppose that after this manner the disciples are united even as the father and the son are one not merely in substance but also in purpose for the holy nature of god has one will and one and the self-same purpose altogether let him so think for he will not stray wide of the mark since we can see identity of purpose among true christians though we have not consubstantiality as the father and the word that proceeded from him and is in him twelve thirteen while i was with them i kept them in thy name which thou hast given me and i guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled but now i come to thee our saviour's speech soon proceeds to illustrate his meaning more plainly and while at the first dark hints were given it is now proclaimed and revealed like a storm breaking into sunshine for the disciples thought that our saviour's abandonment of them i mean in the flesh would inflict on them great loss for nothing could prevent his being with them as god but they expected that no one could then save them after christ's ascension into heaven but that they would fall a prey to those who wished to injure them and that there would be nothing to restrain the hand of their powerful adversaries but rather that any one so disposed might work his will on them without hindrance and involve them in any peril 
but wise as they were and fathers in the faith and bearers of light to the world we need not shrink from saying that they ought not merely to have regarded the incarnate presence of our saviour christ but to have known that even though he were to deprive them of converse with him in the flesh and they saw him not with the eye of the body yet that it was their duty at any rate to think of him as present with them for evermore in the power of his godhead for will god ever lose the attributes of his person or what power can resist an omnipotent nature or is able to perforce to hinder it in the performance of its functions and it is the power or actuality of god's being to be present everywhere and unspeakably to fill the heavens and also the earth and to contain all things but to be contained of none for god is not bounded by place nor separated by distance within any sphere however great for such like things cannot avail to affect that nature which has nothing to do with the dimensions of space then since christ was at the same time god and man the disciples ought to have been aware that though he were absent in the body yet he would not wholly forsake them but would be ever with them by reason of god's unspeakable might and for this reason also our saviour himself said in the foregoing passage holy father keep them in thy name which thou hast given me and here again while i was with them i kept them in thy name which thou hast given me almost pointing out this fact to his disciples that the ability to save them suited rather the working of his power as god than his presence in the flesh for this very flesh was not sanctified of itself but when by his incarnation the word was made one with it it was in some sort transformed into his inherent power and is now become the channel of salvation and sanctification to those who partake thereof we must not then attribute the whole of the divine activities of christ to the flesh by itself but we shall be rather right if we ascribe them to the divine power of the word for does not keeping the disciples in the name of the father mean this and nothing else for they are kept by the glory of god he removes then from his disciples minds the fear which they felt because they thought themselves forsaken often following the same course of thought he assures them that they will be in perfect safety not through living with their master in the body but rather because he is by nature god evidently the universal dominion and might which are his have no end for he can suffer no change or alteration from that state in which he dwells eternally but will keep them safe with ease for evermore and rescue them from every peril that may assail them consider also the forethought wrapped up in this saying to our profit and edification for when he asked that they i mean his holy disciples should be kept by god the father he declares that he himself had done this showing himself like in power and works to his father or rather his inherent might for surely he who is seen to have the same power as god he who is acknowledged the true god must be thought to be wholly inherent in him 
and to possess equality of power and identity of nature with him and how can he who kept them as god in the name of god and as a god crowned them with the glory that proceeded from righteous actions befitting the title be foreign to god or of different nature is he not in very deed shown to be that which he is namely god for nothing that exists can do those works which are peculiar to god without being in its own nature that which we imagine god to be he still preserves in the passage the twofold conception of his character owing to his incarnation for he takes away as it were from his nature as a created being the power of saving and preserving all to whom this is due for their piety towards god and ascribes it to the name of the father attributing to the divine nature alone the things which are of god and for this reason again though he says that he kept the disciples he did not give the honour of taking up the work to his humanity but rather says that it was fulfilled in the name of god excluding himself in a manner from its accomplishment so far as he is flesh and is so conceived of but not excluding himself from the power of keeping them and of accomplishing the works of a god insomuch as he is god and from god the all-working power of the father a divine force which even when at rest displays by its very attributes the nature from which it ineffably proceeded and if here too again he says that the name of god has been given unto him although he is in fact god by nature as the only begotten who proceeded from him he is not thereby in truth degraded nor would he thereby exclude himself from the honour and glory which is his due far from it for to receive is appropriate to his humanity and can be fittingly ascribed thereto for of itself humanity possesses nothing he says that he so kept his disciples and had such care for them that none of them was lost save one whom he calls the son of perdition as though he were doomed to destruction of his own choice or rather his own wickedness and impiety for it is inconceivable that the traitor disciple was by a divine and irresistible decree entangled as it were in the snare of the fowler and brought within the devil's noose for then would he surely have been guiltless when he succumbed to the verdict of heaven for who shall oppose the decree of god and now he is condemned and accursed and it would have been better for him if he had never been born and why surely the wretched man met his doom as a consequence of his own volitions and is not convicted by destiny he that was so enamoured of destruction may well be called a son of perdition inasmuch as he merited ruin and corruption and ever awaits the day of perdition as fraught with anguish and lamentation and as christ added to the words he used concerning him that the scripture might be fulfilled we have given an explanation which may be useful to readers of this passage for it was not because of any prophecy in scripture that the traitor was lost and became so vile as to barter for a few coins the precious blood of christ but rather as through his own innate wickedness he betrayed his lord 
and was infallibly destined to destruction on that account the scripture which cannot lie foretold that so it would be for the scripture is the word of god who knows all things and carries in his own consciousness the character and life of each one of us and his conversation from the beginning to the end moreover the psalmist attributing to him knowledge of all things of the past as well as of the future thus addresses him thou understandest all my thoughts afar off thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways the divine word then which had complete foreknowledge and saw the future as though it were already present besides all the rest which it told us about christ revealed unto us that he that was ranked a disciple would also die the death of a traitor still the foreknowledge and foretelling of the future indicated not the pleasure and commandment of god nor yet was the prophecy directed to compel the actual fulfilment of the evil that was foreshadowed and the conspiracy against the saviour but rather to avert it for when judas had this knowledge he might at any rate if he had so chosen have shunned and avoided the result as he was free to determine his inclinations in any direction but perhaps he will say how then can christ be said to have kept his disciples if merely in pursuance of the inclinations and volitions of their own wills the rest escaped the devil's net while judas alone was taken ill-fated beyond the others how then can the safe-keeping here be spoken of be said to have been of profit nay my good friend we answer soberness is indeed a good thing and the keeping guard over our minds profiteth much together with an earnest endeavour towards the doing of good works establishing ourselves in virtue for so shall we work out our own salvation but this alone will not avail to save the soul of man for it stands in urgent need of assistance and grace from above to make what is difficult of achievement easy to it and to render the steep and thorny path of righteousness smooth and to prove to you that we are not able to do anything at all of ourselves without the aid of divine grace hearken to the voice of the psalmist if the lord build not the house their labour is in vain that build it and if the lord keep not the city the watchman waketh but in vain i say then that it is our bounden duty to foster and practise a home-bred self-denial and a religious frame of mind but in so doing also to ask help of god and receiving the aid that comes from above as a panoply proof against every assault to acquit ourselves like men when god is once for all vouchsafed to grant our prayer and it is therefore in our power to subdue the might of our adversaries and conquer the power of the devil if we do not choose to follow him when he allures us to pleasure or any other kind of sin then i say if we let our wills comply with him and yielding to our wicked inclinations are entangled in his noose how can we any more with justice accuse any one else or fail to attribute our doom to our own folly for is this not what solomon said long ago 
the foolishness of man perverteth his way and his heart fretteth against the lord and this is unquestionably the case if however the traitor was unable to enjoy the succour of the saviour as much as the other disciples let any man only prove this and we submit but if while he was in common with the rest encompassed by the divine grace of his own will he relapsed into the abyss of perdition how can christ be said not to have kept him when he vouchsafed him the riches of his mercy and increased so far as it was possible in any man's case his chance of safety if he had not chosen his doom of his own will his grace moreover was conspicuous in the rest continually keeping in safety those who made their own free will as it were cooperate therewith for this is the manner in which the salvation of each one of us is achieved End of chapter nine part one